Let's thank God. Dear Lord God, we are grateful for your ever-present mercies in our life, and we know that so much of what we struggle with, uh, we want to have redeemed by your Holy Spirit, so much is the mind you want to put us in, that our transformation is in our renewed, renewed mind. We'd ask that you'd help us grasp a few of those points this morning, Lord. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, as you know, I'm a big Ecclesiastes fan. And as a big Ecclesiastes fan, to the point where I, I've labeled my philosophy futilitarianism, um, and it's really enjoyable. It doesn't sound very much fun. It really isn't. It really is a lot of fun. Um, but futilitarianism is rooted in King Solomon's teaching in Ecclesiastes. But when you have a favorite situation, you love thinking a certain way about things a certain way, um, you go back and look at when was the last time I was in this section of Ecclesiastes, and it was 1999 in church, you know. I mean, I've done Bible studies on Ecclesiastes, but chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, not since 1999. We'll fix that this morning. Now, this is one of the key sections of the book. It has some things in it that are difficult to understand. We'll just skim over those. We will uh, try to pick up the general encouragement that you are being pushed toward. I remember years ago, an old friend of ours who worked in our ministry was... He had been my Sunday school teacher back in Southern Baptist Church in Maryland. And so I looked up to him quite a bit. And he said, I just finished Ecclesiastes. Don't ever read it. It is so depressing. Oh, okay, well, he knows better than I which books of the Bible you should ban. I finally got around to it, I don't know, quite a few years later. And couldn't imagine how he thought it was an awful situation. It's realistic, certainly. Now here in Ecclesiastes 3, at the top of the page, this is right at the end of the section I wasn't going to throw in there because it's that, you know, the birds, you know, turn, turn, turn. Uh, everything is a time and a season, time to set up stones, a time to tear down stones. It, we could spend a lot of time on the poetry of that, and it's very valuable, but he lands on his conclusion regarding that when he says there's a time for everything. I have seen the business that God has given to the sons of men to be busy with. I have seen. Ever look at the wife and go, honey, I have seen the business. You want to, you, it's almost a phrase, I have seen the business that you're, you're talking about an epiphany of life. You know what people are up to. It's not a pretty picture. But God has given them something to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He just gave you a list of the times for different things. That is what God, or part of what God, has given you to be busy with by making not just things happen or things exist, phenomena occurs, but there is a place in which it could occur in which it would be beautiful. So I've got this thing tearing down stones, say, setting up stones, kill, war, peace. Go back and look at the list. You can add a bunch of other things to the list. There's phenomenal things that are put into our hands and everything that can happen, everything that can happen can find a beautiful time. He made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's mind, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Okay? You got this task of beauty, and you got this impossible ignorance. 
Right? That's, this is what... And what do we do? We try to farm the things, the parts of life that you can't touch to get the beauty. Because we know he's made everything beautiful in his time. I think it's retirement. So everything I do is trying to pull in the perfect situation, the perfect future, the utopian life. Some people got caught up in that fiction because remember the rich fool in Luke, he was not rich towards God, he was building bigger barns for his future. You got no future, you got no guaranteed anything. I said, well, what about the past? Well, some of you, you know, there's some, you know, old Biddy who's going through her photo albums worshipping every moment in the past or fearing every situation because of their guilt. All that can't be touched. You can't make it more beautiful once it's happened. God can make it more beautiful. God's got the future. God's got the past. But he has given us only the knowledge of it. He's put eternity into your mind and you can't know what's going to happen. Neener, neener. So now what? What I want you to sort of ask yourself is what are you busy with? Why are you busy with it? Do you know what time it is? Because everything we do Everything we do is not only God has given us something to be busy with regarding what we do, we have another reason for doing it. We either have God's reason for doing it, or we have our own reason for doing it. It's a faith. Maybe it was the faith given you by your Puritan ancestors. Maybe it was a faith given to you by America. Maybe it was a faith given to you by your own sense of self-worth, whatever that might be. You have an inclination and I want you this morning to check it. Do you know why you do what you do? Because given that God has given us something to be busy with, I would presume, I would presume that the finding of the beautiful time and the some kind of relinquishment of the things that are not now is your task. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and to enjoy themselves as long as they live. Well, there's a great verse. Somebody asks you, some uber-pious person, what's your, what's your life verse? Well, I, don't, I think that God just wants me to be happy and enjoy myself. That doesn't even sound like Bible, does it? Doesn't even sound, that sounds like some frat boy, you know, well, I just, God wants me to be happy. Because you, you hear that as an excuse. Right? Somebody's going to walk out on their spout. Well, God wants me to be happy. That's no verse. Show me the verse. Okay, right there. Nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Also, that it is God's gift to man that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. Nothing better. You say, Evan, I can see why you like this book. But we've got, to get, we've got to take it out of the Bible. We have to get rid of it. This is not inspired. This isn't like, oh boy, you run the, you know, maybe Lamentations. Maybe Lamentations is your cup of tea. You know how hard that is? At another place, no, I think I know Ecclesiastes. Uh, <laughs> When he says in chapter 2, there's nothing better for a man that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. It's a recurring theme, by the way. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who could eat or who could have enjoyment. For to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Solomon is talking to you about how you're supposed to view life What's the right frame of reference? Do not think you don't already have one. You already have a frame of reference. Either taught to you by how you were treated as a little kid, where you're some sort of self-absorbed, gimme person, very real positive, real popular, you know, cheerleader mentality, or whether you're some depressive, 
who picked up the wrong signal, didn't like the way you were treated. You're, you were building either a personal inertial force in your life, a personal faith about the way the world is, and combined it with the faiths that the world's schools of thought taught you. Again, I'm a big fan of capitalism. I think capitalism is pretty cool. Works like Billy out. Same with democracy. Kind of, I don't like that as much. Um, but you see, these are forces, these are ideas that you may or may not hold. But just because they're an idea that you think is better, say, capitalism over socialism, you have to ask yourself, is it rooted in the things that God thinks I ought to be have them, I ought to have them rooted in? Does it understand the Christian's distance from tomorrow? I have a task to be happy and enjoy my life and take pleasure in my toil. No, I can't get that anywhere but from God. And it's only accountable. I can only do it now. I can't gain pleasure tomorrow. I think I am. We always think we are. We think the money we're putting in the bank is really virtually almost prophesying me being there to spend it. Well, that's what the rich fool thought. He thought the bigger barns would mean the grain was going to be there for him to spend when he got there. But he didn't get there. He died that night. His soul was required of him. All such boasting, it says in James, is evil. For us to presume we have tomorrow. You can't even guarantee that you will wake up and you're planning your enjoyments for that. Or rooting your life in them. I say, Evan, don't you ever plan it? Well, sure. I might be wrong in it, but also you say, well, I'm not living as if the plans for tomorrow were my centerpiece in life. You have to be more, I don't mean to use the word in a too positive a sense, too, a little more existential. I know that whatever God does endures forever, says in verse 14. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has made it so in order that men should fear before him. So we've got these tasks. And finding beauty, finding happiness, and finding fear. Because you know perfectly well from reading Proverbs that the same author says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, I've got to find certain things that I'm encouraged to think about here. Is it better for me to be happy? There is nothing better for than for you to be happy. Are you happy? My father's been running around. Well, not running around. He's been sitting asking people, are you more joyful now than when you first became a Christian? An awful lot of people say no. Awful lot. Why not? He says, like, we can fix that. Let's fix it. Amazing how people, how, how they cling to being unhappy. Don't you realize it's your responsibility? God has given you a business with which to be busy. You're supposed to be finding beauty, you're supposed to be finding happy, and you're supposed to be finding fear. And you stand in the presence of an idea about life, that I know that the future belongs to the only, only, only God can say something is going to happen and make it happen, no questions asked. That which, has, which is, already has been, that which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For he has appointed a time for every matter and for every work. Realize that? Evil 
necessitates a judgment. Otherwise, it's just an opinion. Mercy necessitates a judgment. And there's a perfect moment. Part of our problem is we try to take judgment on other people when we shouldn't. We don't leave it to the wrath of God. But God will. There wouldn't be evil if there weren't a judgment. And we're talking to a couple of uh, feminist lesbians at uh, campus. I was preaching on campus many years ago and got to do a long discussion with them and finally got them to admit that it was was a pleasant conversation, though vigorous, um, that yes, the oppression of women was really only something they didn't like. They couldn't really say it was wrong. They got to the point where as soon as they they knew there had to be a judgment for something to be evil, they were willing to throw their own morality over the side and just say, okay, it's not really immoral, we just don't like it. Okay, as long as you're honest about that, as long as you don't try to impose your opinions on other people. But God knows that everything has its time and its season, and he also knows that evil has this fellow companion called the judgment that he will bring to pass. Mercy, God's God's future, justice on the wicked, God's past, and that's also in the past too, justice on the wicked. Mercy for your sins. There wouldn't wouldn't be mercy without God's judgment on your wickedness. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for he has appointed a time for every matter, for every work. Because he has appointed a time for every matter and for every work. And a time for every matter and every work in which it will be beautiful. I said in my heart with regard to the sons of men that God is testing them to show them that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They have all the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. Now, you're just saying, I don't agree with Solomon here. You don't get to do that. You know, when somebody says, you know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave, and you say, I don't agree with that. You don't get to disagree with the wisest man who ever lived. You're not that smart. You might not understand what he just said, why you are but beasts. He might have had some limitations being under the old covenant that when you died, you went to Sheol, you went to the grave. It may be also that you are but beasts. And that everything we think, remember, you had eternity put into your mind, and you have no more access to knowing what is in it than the beast does. You ever see an animal? They seem to not care. Even when pain is in their their life, sure, it hurts them. But they're not processing that in terms of eternity. They're processing it in terms of right now. This hurts right now. What what happens when it starts to hurt you? It's never going to stop, right? Because you've got eternity to play with. And so you start having fear and hope and desire and depression. All sorts of other things because that eternity, blank, that you can't control. God has put eternity into your hearts so that you would not know. So that when you get hurt, the animal has got the blessing of having no sense of duration. No sense of tomorrow, or at least the day after. They make no no plans to speak of. Oh man, but you're full of them. You should have been different about that knowledge. You're supposed to learn that you're but beasts. Because at the end of this, you're dead, they're dead. How are you going to deal with that? Now here's the difference. You say, Evan, well, Solomon has offered you something that is different than the beast. The beast does not have a now like you have a now. Your, your elevation over them is not in terms of your controlling the future. You don't control the future. 
Your superiority to the beast is, as some people have already, already argued, the nature of philosophy, the nature of beauty. Animals don't have a sense of beauty. We look at animals and say they are beautiful. But that bird that hops along and does this amazing plumage thing, you know, trying to seduce the chicks. No pun intended. The, uh, the, the, the woman hen, whatever the hen is, the pea hen, there's a peacock and a pea hen. Pea hens are really need a visit to Mary Kay or wherever. They, they are really dull. And the peacock is, of course, you know, a big fan. <coughs> the, the pea hens are not going around going, wow, he sure is hot. Look at those feathers. Look at that beauty. We get all thrilled seeing the shiny feathers and so on. Doing something for the pea hen, but they're not developing schools of thought on aesthetics. They're not making museums of the prettiest peacock out there. They don't have magazines with peacocks in them. Now, you have a superiority over them in the now. You have the ability to have now be constructed in such a way that I can make better choices than the animal does, than the beast does. I'm still faced with death at the end. I still can't deal with tomorrow. I know more about that tomorrow is there. But my humility needs to pull me back. My humility pulls me back into the now. So I saw there's nothing better than a man should enjoy his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? We've lived our whole lives in what's coming after us. Anything but right now. We wonder why right now we're miserable because we're left, you're leaving right now without any direction, any building, any decision. And we live life by what happened and what will happen. So it needs to have a, a moment where you unpack your philosophy of life, where you take a look at, why do I think about this a certain way? Why do I struggle with annoyance with these people over here? What, what sets me up for this kind of chaos? Do you understand what you're claiming? And are you claiming the same thing Solomon claimed? There's going to be, uh, people have objected to the book of Ecclesiastes almost as much as many Protestants object to James. There's always somebody like Luther who's going, oh, the book of James is a, what do you call it, a pistol of straw? to say, it just didn't say quite things the way Luther wanted them said. A little bit too much on works. Luther didn't like that. But many people have a rough time with Ecclesiastes. They also have a rough time with portions of Jesus Christ, but Solomon just sort of walks into it in this book. He just really sits down and ponders the state of man. You need to know if you're going to object on the basis of what philosophy are you objecting? On the basis of what are you saying this wisdom isn't of God? He thinks he's correct. I saw, I know that whatever God does, I know there is nothing better for them. He's making truth claims. You have to say, I don't like it. Why don't I like it? You don't get to just have some sort of, you know, clasping your pudgy hands together and say, that's just not the Jesus I know. You don't get to, you don't get to run around and not think and respond to a not think, a thinky book. This is a thinky book. You've got to come up with what your thoughts are. You've got to say, you know, it's because I really, I really want to be more comfortable by planning all of my future. A man's got to have, you come up with these words, responsibility. Yeah, you're responsible for right now. That's your primary responsibility. And you say, well, Evan, is there any planning for the future? Sure. Sure there's planning for the future. As long as you don't say it's your responsibility as long as you don't say, I have a presumption on it, that this is the task, I need to know that it's presumptuous for me to plan the future. You do not say, I will go to thus and such a town and buy and sell and get gain. 
You say, if the Lord wills, I will do thus and such. All such boasting is evil. Do you realize that your plans for your life could be evil just for having them? Just, just for having them. But no, I just wanted to be a mechanical engineer. I know. But you thought you got to be because you planned to be. I didn't mean to pick on the mechanical engineers. It's just the major that came into my mind suddenly. Now I see the Engels and, and Kevin and I'm sorry. I could pick on law students or I could pick on something else. Social majors. Nobody here does that, right? Sociology. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Got to be art majors. I know there's no art majors here, right? Okay. I was an art major. There's no future in that. So it's, <laughs> no. Do you realize all such boasting is evil? But I don't agree with that. Okay, so you've thrown Ecclesiastes over the side, now you've thrown the book of James over the side. When are you going to figure out, <coughs> figure out <coughs> excuse me, that your philosophy of life needs to be like I said, unpacked, laid out on the table and said, what am I carrying around? What positions about life and the world and what a man is up to? What am I believing? Because I'm being asked to believe something else here and I'm feeling an emotional reaction against it. What's, what am I supposed to do? Well, you have to, you, to, know, to know what you're supposed to do, you've got to know what you're already thinking. Now, it says in chapter 4 here, again, I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Now, I don't know if he's speaking twice of the oppressed, or he's letting you know that neither the oppressed nor the oppressor has anyone to comfort them, which kind of messes with your head a little bit, but... And I thought that the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So. What do, you, what, what do you unpack from that? Okay, what is Solomon's view? You, the living, have the worst possible position in regard to this question of anything. Because, well, it would be better if you were dead, and better yet still if you'd never been born. Life is like Disneyland. Okay, that's what thought, I immediately thought of. Life is like Disneyland. Don't you just really feel it would be better if you had never even seen it? There is something in Anaheim that is the heart of darkness, that is a wicked, awful mockery of life, with the sweaty hands of many children on every handrail, every line, Americans in Bermuda shorts, just a lot of wrong going on there. And wouldn't it be better if you had never seen it? Or having seen it, you were now dead. But the worst possible thing in my life as an adult male is to have been at Disneyland with my children. It's awful. That's what life is like. But you, <laughs> that's so silly, I love Disneyland. Because I have no brain. And I'm just running through life, clasping my pudgy hands together, running to the next ride to stand an hour in line, hoping to be tall enough. <laughs> because that's what I think life is. I think it's Anne of Green Gables, for heaven's sake. I think it's, it's wonderful. There are all castles are made out of chicken wire and concrete. Solomon has looked at things 
Uh, you want to, you, you say, I don't know, you have a really dim view of life. Well, I talk to my father a few times a week, and he shares stories with me. He is also convinced that the world is a wicked, wicked place. It's a wicked place. And you know what's wrong with the wickedness, the oppression, the violence that's going on? Sometimes you get a sense of it when you see something coming out of the Sudan or something coming out of just the way the world is. You see ISIS crucifying people, shooting them in the head just like a Nazi. Like you didn't think that was still possible. You thought that was only in documentaries. But no, someone's still doing it. And there's no one to comfort them. There is nothing you can put your hand to to stop the wicked. There's nothing you could put your hand to to stop the reason for others being wicked. I mentioned that last week. You might, you might just be the one oppressed, but the oppressed just want to have it their way, and that means their oppressor has the right to have it their own way. Until men stop and go, you know, I'm going to serve the living God. I'm not going to be serving myself. Because as soon as I serve myself, I might be on the losing end of that little argument. I might be, you know, the Shiite Muslim who the ISIS Sunnis end up killing. I might just be on the losing end. But some of them are on the winning end. There's no one to comfort them either. They've got wrong ideas of what life is about. But you don't have a choice about never having been born. It's better to have never been born. It's better to be dead now, to be past it all. There's a series of betters of this. One thing I noticed all the way back to chapter 3, um, where he says, there is nothing better in verse 12. He keeps repeating that. This is better than that. What I want to encourage you to do as you unpack your own philosophy of life, realize you have lived every faith you have. Faith works. James is correct. Faith without works is dead, right? So you could claim to have a belief that you didn't believe, and if you didn't really believe it, it won't work. But it's also true with every faith. It's not just the Christian faith works if you believe it. All faiths work if you believe it. So unpacking your philosophy or what you think tomorrow holds for you, what debt you have for tomorrow. I'm a, I'm a mom and I worry about my kids. I'm sorry. You're evil. You are evil. But no, I'm responding. No, you're evil. Jesus told you not to. Jesus, Son of God, in case the wisest man who ever lived is not good enough for you. We'll have the Son of God come down and tell this mom, but no, you don't get to be that mom. You don't get to worry about tomorrow, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, how shall we live. You don't get to worry. The Lord has knows, knows that you have need of all of these things. Oh yeah, yeah, you need them. We're not questioning that you need them. We're not questioning that, yeah, bad things can happen to you tomorrow. But what is your job? To think like Jesus Christ asked you to think. Think like the scriptures enjoin you to think. What's better? Somebody asked my wife the other night, we were sitting in the library at the house and asked her what her favorite song was or something like that. Leslie doesn't have favorites. Except for me, I'm her favorite. But in your song, you know, favorite food, favorite this, favorite that. We don't like to have these questions of, because as soon as you say, this is, you know, what would be a great favorite song? Uh, okay, then. Yes, that would be a good anthem for most, but. Uh, Oh, waiting for the bus by uh, the top. Um, which, by the way, Leslie's band, L.A. and the Earthquakes, has got their first gig lined up for June 12th outside of Laytal Realty for Art Walk. So if you want to hear them play live, they will be playing on the sidewalk outside of Laytal Realty. 12th of June. 
Rock on. They'll be playing Waiting for the Bus by ZZ Top. Um, that got me off the track. What is it? <coughs> no favorites. No favorites. Better. What's better than that? Get used to this, because Solomon believes that you can find things that are better. You, you, that, that, that I've got a phenomena, I've got a moment. Let me put the phenomena. Everybody, you've ever been in love where you've asked some girl out and it, your timing was off? She looks at you and she starts to laugh. Ever do? Maybe it's only me. Well, I, those those things can happen. Well, what do you what did what were you thinking? You got the wrong moment. Great idea, wrong moment. There's a better moment for that. There's a beautiful wrong moment for that. Finding it. Solomon seems to think that you can start digging up the thoughts in your mind. He went through a major shift in his thinking because he believed, like you, that life had purpose. That it wasn't vanity. Everything you did wasn't pointless. And then you died. He found what was better. Verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now you think that might be a little hyperbolic there. Everything? Everything? Absolutely everything is keeping up with the Joneses? Everything? Okay, let's just grant that he meant, you know, I'm speaking that most of human advancement, skill, toil, getting better at something is referential. It's comparative. How much money you have is comparative. How much, how you feel about how much money you have is comparative. You ever hear stories from your parents about the depression? If you have parents that old, and I do, they talk about making, oh, I'm at $1.67 a week. Oh, those were fat times. You look at ads in magazines, $600 for a new car. But for the time, the comparative amount of $600. I tell people what we paid for the big house and they almost faint. But at the time, it was a king's ransom. We know we, everything is comparative. Everything is looking around. You know perfectly well that to a small degree, everything you're doing, you're taking into consideration how other people are standing, how other people are dressed, what circumstance you're in, how much do you make, where's my status, all sorts of things out there. And Solomon's agreeing with you. All this work, all this toil out of envy for your neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after wind. You say, Evan, I bet you like this verse. You're such a slug. You have no ambition. Oh, I have lots of ambition. No initiative, but I have lots of ambition. I would like to be monarch. But I'm expecting you to make me king. I don't want to do any work. You say, yeah, this is this is appeals to some people, the gentleman of leisure sort of life. But the next verse throws in the other folly. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. He does nothing. And he starves. It's not always that if tomorrow and the futility of thinking you can control it is foolishness that the opposite isn't foolishness as well because we're not looking for creating the opposite that's bad so that must be good what if they're both bad the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh and everybody else is laboring to outdo their neighbor now where do I go well, he tells you, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. The problem with the fool is he's not doing anything. The wise man is building his now into something that God approves, that God finds beautiful, that makes you happy, 
as you fear God. You're building something. You're just not building the future. That's our error. We're, not just, we're just not building our competitive envy. We're just not building our fears about what little Johnny's going to get himself into and if I don't set aside enough money for their college education. People hyperventilating. You just have to look at them sideways and, and mention some new chemical they haven't had a chance to get afraid about yet, but now they are because tomorrow enough of that chemical is going to destroy your life. People are afraid of the wrong thing. The fact that you can't control tomorrow means that its presence in your life ought to reflect. That's what I'm saying. Say, my, my tomorrows have to reflect this truth. I'm not going to tell you that you don't do anything, you don't get a job, you don't put any money in the bank, you don't buy insurance. But this truth had better be reflected in how you run your life. Have you picked up today and said, this is actually what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be making this moment beautiful. This moment happy, pleasurable, and in the fear of the Lord. Now, you get set free from yesterday by the grace of Jesus Christ. Yesterday you were sitting up a storm all the way up through many, many years of life and you got on your knees and you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and you asked him to forgive you and in his great mercy, he did. All of the past gone. I don't have to, what is it? Not, Paul talks about not looking back but straining onward to the future. We strive for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I forget that verse. We don't look back. Because Christ has set us free from there. And we're told to be leery about tomorrow because you have no claim on it. If I build my life on tomorrow, I'm wrong. If I say I'm going to have tomorrow, I'm evil. Have your now, have your philosophy reflect this somehow. That it's better to be about a handful of quietness is doubly good. One handful of quietness is better than two hands full of toil and striving. So have you practiced getting that quietness, even just one handful of it? Do people who know you say, well, he's got... <clears throat> they look at your life and say, he's got his hands full, but at least one is full of quietness? They ever say that about you? No, it's usually he's got his hands full. Yeah, I've got too much going on. There's ah. one handful of quietness. Because that's what you're supposed to be doing, right? That's where the better is. What, what, have I set my trajectory in life? My, my learning, my advancement, my development of mind to get me there. There's another better in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, a person who has no one, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who was alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they are warm. But how can one be warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Do you want to know how much of your creation God intended to give you others? In it. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. It is not good for him to be alone. You say, well, Jesus didn't get married. Yeah. Nor Paul. Yeah. But they had moved on not to something non other oriented. Jesus Christ was so much more completely other-oriented for the kingdom of God, and that's what Paul recommends. You don't get married 
for the sake of the kingdom, where others occupy you. It's hard on a marriage. The mission field, the ministry, it's hard on a marriage because these people are occupied with other people. But others are good for you. Having no point to what you're doing. What am I doing all this work? But we're developing a society in which almost everybody's a sociopath. Everybody's thinking just of themselves. Just of whether or not they get theirs and theirs better be free. And it better be entertaining. It's a choice between self and others. Who do we face? Who do we look at? Who do we pursue? Do we understand the benefit of the presence of this other person? Just one. Maybe two. Friends, wives, husbands, families, communities. They are a better. Verse 13 says, Better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will no longer take advice. Even though he had gone from prison to the throne or in his own kingdom have been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun as well as that youth who was to stand in his place. There was no end of all the people. He was over all of them. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. What's better then? Better is wisdom than power. Right? Because power without the wisdom. Old and foolish kings are not good. And it says there's this awful thing that says he will not be well remembered. But also in Ecclesiastes, it says, and I'll give you the reference here, in Ecclesiastes 9, I have seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his works are not heeded. Words are not heeded. He saved the city. It was a good thing. It's a good thing even if they don't know you. Even if they never hear that you did a good thing, thought a good thing, made something better. It's good. Innately good. It has, it has powers that do a good, and we're not to even have wisdom, although it does provide a greater reputation than the old and foolish king, I could, should be able to subtract that reputational inertia to be smarter than, better than in this way, to know that it is good to be wise just because it's wise, just because God wants you wise. Wisdom is better than the memory of your wisdom. To have lived wisely. Because all you've been given is a set of nows that you live through. And your, your nows are either going to be beautiful, enjoyed, pleasurable, in the fear of the Lord, and wise, together with somebody else. The things I could put together here to describe a life that I understand the wickedness of the world around me and there's no one to comfort it. And I can't get out of that. But in this situation, my life is beautiful, my life is pleasurable, my life is in the fear of the Lord and I'm enjoying it with someone else. Maybe a group of someone else's, maybe you guys. Wisdom having its own reward of pleasure. To those who please him, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Say that earlier in chapter 3. To those who please him, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Now, the sum of it is, 
I can point you back to the whole book anytime. Read it, reread it, reread it again, and then go back and reread it, and then reread it. But in that tension that you might have felt about some of the things said, and maybe I said things too exuberantly, maybe I claimed too much, but question yourself as well as questioning Solomon, or question yourself as well as questioning Evan about how much he pushed it. There is a better. If you do not seek the better that is defined as such by God, you are going to default to the worse. And don't come, well, you can still come crying to others. It didn't work out. I really loved him. It didn't work out. I know you said I shouldn't marry a non-Christian, but oh. Yeah, if you don't, if you don't do the better, you're going to either default or actively seek the worse. The world was made by God. He, made, he makes how it works. You know, you don't put sugar in your radiator before you drive across the desert. That would be bad. At our reception, just before we drove across the desert to L.A., 1978, one of the family friends of Leslie's, who'd probably had a few too many beers, was going to put rice in our radiator. That would have been bad. We would have died. We wouldn't have been here. We would have been out by Ocotillo, sweltering in 120 degrees. It was 110 the day we got married. And why is that? Because Dotson, who made the car, did not design your radiator as a slow rice cooker. Nor did it design any of the channels for that water to cool your engine to be also passages for cooked rice. Which, if they had done that, the engine would have ceased to function. What's the better? Is the way you think better? Because if it isn't what is better, just by default, you've picked up something worse. You want a life that you can rejoice in? Start picking up the immediate and saying, are the people in front of me getting loved like I need to love people? Not planning to love people later. I'm planning to love people in Bangkok, Thailand, and, and who I know need love, but I'm not there to love them. Or the people who I am with right now, my children, my spouse, my friends, are they getting what I should be offering them? Seek the better. Avoid the worse. Look at Ecclesiastes. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you very much. You are good to us. Help us understand ourselves, the world in which we live, the presumptions we make about the past and tomorrow. Give us right now, Lord, in your spirit, the work and fruit of your spirit, that we might love right now, that we might be rejoicing right now, we might be patient right now, peaceful right now, not someday, not only after we've arranged things, but because we please you, in your Son's name, amen.